Amen indeed. I want to say a special welcome to those that are joining us online today through our live stream. We are glad that you are here and thankful for the technology that allows us to be together even when we are not. I also want to say a special welcome to those that are joining us today on KTCU. We hope that wherever you are, that you are touched by this hour as we worship together. So we are continuing our series today that we're calling The Leading Causes of Life. Over the last 18 months, we've been surrounded with way too much death. We're all familiar with the leading causes of death, especially right now in the midst of a pandemic. And so we're looking at what are the leading causes of life? What are those things that allow us to live life to the fullest, to live the life that God intends for us to live, to live the life that we were created to live, life with wholeness, with vitality, with meaning and purpose and health. The text that you're about to hear this morning is from the book of 1 Peter. It was a letter written by someone identifying himself as the Apostle Peter. The former disciple that had spent so much time with Jesus, but oftentimes we look at this and see that it was probably not Peter, that the language and the style and the structure of this letter have led just about every scholar to believe that this was pseudonymous, that it was written by someone else claiming to be Peter, because whoever wrote this letter appears to have a fairly formal education in rhetoric and philosophy, an advanced knowledge of the Greek language, none of which would have been had by a Galilean fisherman like Peter. Whoever it was was writing to an audience that was experiencing, in the words of the author, various trials being tested by fire. In the midst of all of that suffering, in the midst of all that suffering, the author offers us hope and encouragement, reminding them and reminding us to remain strong and faithful in whatever adversity we may face. Now, I want you to know that we will be reading from a translation this morning uh, known as The Message. It is a paraphrase of the Bible in contemporary language, and so it may sound somewhat different and is different than what you might find in your pew pocket Bibles in front of you. So I invite you to listen now to 1 Peter. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you no exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. The Word of God for the people of God. And thanks be to Roy. Boy, with that voice, I could listen to you read the phone book. (laughs) So I am a fourth-generation disciple. By that, I mean that my great-grandfather, whom I never had a chance to meet, 
was a member of the Christian church, Disciples of Christ in Missouri. And later in life, he moved to Miami, not Florida, but the one, the small town up in the panhandle. And then later, his son, my grandfather, moved to Claude, Texas, where he joined the first Christian church of Claude. It was there that my mother, who was here with us this morning, uh, was raised. In the first Christian church of Claude, she would later in her life move to Northern California, be a part of the first Christian church of Concord, where I was raised and later had the chance to serve as the senior minister for 12 years before coming to UCC. All that to say is that sometimes I think about that and about how that, that inclination, that decision, that faithfulness of my great-grandfather has impacted my life and ultimately my ministry in ways in which he probably never imagined. I have, uh, in part because of him, a degree from the largest disciples university in our denomination. I am an ordained disciples minister. I serve one of the largest disciples congregations in our denomination, in part, in part because of the inclination, the decision, the faithfulness of my great-grandfather and all those that came after him. So we're talking today about blessing, and blessing is a church word if ever there was one. And it can mean a number of different things depending on the context, depending on who is saying it and what the situation is. It means something different to a lot of people. Oftentimes, blessing we sort of associate with, with God's favor or God's protection. And we sometimes ask the blessing when we gather together around the table, either this one or around our table at home. And of course, here in the South, a blessing means sometimes something a little different. It is, as they say, quite versatile. It can be sincere. It can express sympathy or concern. Oh, bless your heart. But it can also be a bit of an insult that sounds like you're being polite. As Southerners, right, we're raised to be polite, and so we want to sound polite even when we don't. How many of us have ever heard something like this? That boy is as dumb as a bag of rocks. Bless his heart. That is a phrase that is so versatile, it can cover a multitude of sins. In the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, it means something a little bit different. Uh, the Old Testament is a very patriarchal story. A father's blessing was of great importance. In the patri patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all gave formal blessings to their children, and in Jacob's case, in Jacob's case, to even some of his grandchildren. Receiving your father's blessing was a high honor, and losing that blessing was oftentimes tantamount to a curse. In the story of the book of Jacob, in the story of Jacob, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, Jacob is on the run, fearing for his life. His brother is after him because he stole his father's blessing. And there, on the run, he, he encounters this angel one night, and they, they wrestle together. He wrestles, and he, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And at the end of the day, at the end of the night, 
The angel blesses Jacob, and as a result of that encounter, for the rest of his life, he would walk with a limp. Blessing in the way that I want to invite us to think about it today as a, a leading cause of life is not just a nice thing to say. It is generative. By that, I mean it generates life. It is, it is what we do that creates more and more life within ourselves, but also others, those that will come after us. And it has been going on for, well, generations. Gary Gunderson, who wrote a book on the relationship between faith and health, it's been formative in this series that we've been a part of. He says this. He says, the point is, human life is really short. And so success cannot be measured only in our measly lifespans. Human life has to be a social life spanning multiple generations or it doesn't work. Each generation has to adapt using all that we have learned from those that have come before us so that those that can come after us will live or else it's not a successful strategy. Think about it this way. We are in part as a result of those that have gone before us, their decisions, their actions, their efforts. And so much of what we do, so much of who we are, is in preparation of those that will come after us. Perhaps it's through our children, is it not, that, that we most fully grasp the significance, the, the benefits, the benevolence, the ferocity of blessing. I would argue that every parent I know wants more than anything else to do their very best for their children, to be able to provide and, and, and affirm and protect our children. It leads us to our better selves. And at the same time, the blessing that our children give us invites us to examine our own lives in ways that perhaps we never expected. For instance, where did that problem child's problems come from? Well, as they say, the apple rarely falls far from the tree. Gunderson goes on to say this. He says, if we look closely, there is in our children that what we can recognize in ourselves. And the blessing of family requires that we find it, that we name it, and working with it, move beyond the boundaries of easy expectations. Who we are in part, is a result of those that have gone before us. And who we strive to be is, in part, because of those that will come after us. For some, that's hard, that realization, that recognition. That recognition that, that, that we are a part of that great web of blessing that takes place in our lives. And we want to, to be able to break away, to be our own selves, William Willimon, who was uh, a dean at Duke Divinity School, he came to realize in working with adolescents for a number of years, a major reason why, why adolescents at some point in their development will try to break away from their parents. He says this, he says, at some point they come to see that one's life's talents, values, both their strengths and their weaknesses, those are gifts from their parents but we would rather be self-made men and women, 
standing on our own two feet, striding bravely into a world of our own creation. But that's simply not the way that it is. Who I am today is in part a result of my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And in the same way, who I try to be is in part of what I want to be for my children, for those that will come after me. And anthropologists will tell us, will tell us that we have this primal need within us to be a blessing to those that will come after us, but also this deep sense of accountability, of accountability to those that have come before us. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. When you were younger, did you ever do something that you probably shouldn't do? Probably, right? And chances are that at some point you did something that you probably shouldn't do that your parents caught you at. And in that moment, the worst thing that could happen was not that they get mad. How many of us have ever heard this? I'm not mad. I'm just... Is that not the worst? I would much rather have my mom be mad and yell and scream and punish me. But my God, don't be disappointed in me. We have this deep sense of accountability to those that have come before us. I heard a story not too long ago about a young man from a, a country in West Africa called Burkina Faso. And somehow he got a scholarship to attend the University of Georgia. Now, Burkina Faso, is, he came from a village that was very rural, very agricultural based. And so he was able to go and to get this degree. He ended up getting his Ph.D., his Ph.D. in agriculture from the University of Georgia. And when he graduated to everyone's wildest imagination, to their amazement, he announced that he was going back to that small, poor, rural village. And what's more, he was amazed that everybody else around him was amazed. He explained, he said this, he says, when I die, I want to come before my father and say, here is what I did with my life. I hope to be worthy, he said, of my father's blessing. Who we are is in part of those that have gone before us. And in the same way, as a parent, I oftentimes think about whether my kids are proud of the way that I'm living. Are they, uh, are they proud of the choices that I'm making of the way... <laughs> and my kids are all here today, and so this is... <laughs> are my kids proud of me and what I am giving them? what I'm offering them, not just the shoes that I buy and the food that I put on the table, but the way that I'm teaching them with my life. Something more basic but yet more profound. Am I living so that they will feel blessed by my life? That my life is a blessing to them? Have I helped them to be fully alive, to live abundantly? And this is true not just when they were younger, but even more so as they get older and they, we anticipate what will happen when I take my father's place and they take mine for their own children 
and later grandchildren. And I wonder, I wonder if it's not necessarily by the advice that I give them, by the lessons that I teach them, but by the example that I set before them. As Robert Fulgham once said so wisely, do not worry that your children never listen to you. Worry instead that they are always watching you. Does that keep anyone else awake at night besides me? I had a woman at the church that I served in Atlanta whose marriage was not necessarily a good one. There was not a lot of love in that marriage, and she was aware that that was the air in which her children were breathing. Those were the waters that they were swimming in. It was not a love-filled household. And so one day she woke up and, and asked herself, she asked herself, would I want this type of life, would I want this type of relationship for my son and for my daughter? And she came to the realization that it's not. And so finally, finally she found the strength to do what she'd been needing to do for a while. And in part for the benefit not just for herself but for her children, she found the courage to leave. I wonder... I wonder if one of the leading causes of life is to realize, to fully understand that life is short and that we are to live fully, that we are to live completely, that we are to live abundantly now, not wait until someday to live the life that we've always wanted, to live, to live the life that God invites us to live here, now the life that God created us to live. This last week, the TCU Alumni Association, in partnership with the TCU Magazine, had, a, had an online event this last week on, on how we remember the events of 9-11. And one of the people in that event was a young woman by the name of Meredith. And she's a senior at TCU, and she was 15 months old on 9-11 when her father, who served in the Army, was killed in the attack on the Pentagon. And she talked about how she has no recollection at all of her father, only through which her mother passed down. The stories that she told, the descriptions of who he was. She said this, It's not just that this was this huge domestic terrorist attack. These people had lives. They were people. They had families, they had a life, they had a future ahead of them. They weren't just a number. They were much more than that. And so on this 20th anniversary of these horrific events, I think of those thousands of families who never got to share that life together, who never got to pass along life's important lessons, who never got to celebrate birthdays or walk daughters down the aisle. They never had that chance. And so this week, and maybe every week, the way that we best honor those that died on 9-11 is to remember, to remember our promise to never forget. And one of the ways that we can honor them and to honor their memory is by realizing and remembering how life, how short life can be, how precarious life sometimes is. 
Sandy Dahl, who was the wife of the pilot of Flight 93. She recently said this. She says, if we learn nothing else from this tragedy, we learn that life is short and there is no time for hate. So friends, maybe the most meaningful way that we can honor those who lost their life on that day is to choose compassion over callousness, dignity over disdain, that we can uphold our principles when it seems that everybody else around us is compromising theirs. That we can be grateful for the precious time that we have time that other people were denied. Do you remember? Do you remember what Peter said? Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. This goes for all of you. No exceptions. No retaliation. No sharp tongue sarcasm. Bless their hearts. Your job he said, your job is to bless, to be a blessing. You see, blessing is that web of life opening up the channels of love that have been flowering before us, that have come into the world and will flow long after we leave it. You see, we are a part of the long life, life-giving actions of generosity of kindness, of hospitality, of humor. Your job in the way that you live your life is to be a blessing, to recognize that you are in part who has come before you and that we are in part to build a better world for those that will come after.